Genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, now make up the vast majority of corn and soybeans grown in the United States. The rise in GMOs has been accompanied by a sharp increase in the use of chemical herbicides, at least some of which have been classified as probably or possibly carcinogenic to humans. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Philip Landrigan, Dean for Global Health at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Landrigan has co-authored a perspective article about the regulation and public health implications of GMOs and the herbicides used on them. Dr. Landrigan, you write that regulatory bodies in 64 countries require labeling of genetically modified foods, but not the United States. What's kept the FDA from establishing similar rules? I think that there are several reasons, Steve, why the FDA has not required labeling. One factor has been that the food industry has certainly done their best to persuade the Food and Drug Administration that labeling isn't necessary. I think another factor has been the fact that twice over the past decade or so, the National Academy of Sciences has brought together expert committees that examine the human health risks of genetically modified foods, and both of those committees came to the conclusion that the genetically modified foods pose no particular hazards to human health. There's also been a lack of risk assessment and post-marketing surveillance of genetically modified crops. Are the companies that produce the products not holding up their end of the bargain, or has regulation been too weak there, too? I think that it's a combination of factors. The companies have certainly not voluntarily done post-marketing surveillance, but at the same time, the regulation has been weak. And so there hasn't been a push to require the collection of data. And of course, Any effort at post-marketing surveillance is is hampered by the fact that GM foods are not labeled as such, and therefore consumers are not able to make voluntary reports which they can ascribe to the consumption of GM foods. Much of the public debate about genetically modified foods has focused on the foods themselves, but you argue in your article that a major concern is genetically modified herbicide-resistant crops have involved substantial increases in the use of herbicides. Why has that issue not played a more prominent role in the public discussion? The background here is that both of the two previous reviews of genetically modified foods that were conducted by the National Academy of Sciences focused almost exclusively on the genetic aspects. And the tack that those reports took was that they said, listen, genetic engineering of food crops is really nothing more than an acceleration and an extension of the practice of selective breeding, which, of course, farmers have practiced for millennia, and therefore, what's the hazard? They really didn't look at the collateral issues apart from the genetics of the situation. But there are two factors now that have converged that raise the profile of the collateral hazards, and those were the factors that prompted us to write this perspective article for the New England Journal of Medicine, and that are really the nub of our argument. And the factors of these Number one, herbicide use, which has already increased markedly over the past two decades, is now going to have to increase much, much more because what has happened is that the very broad application of chemical herbicides to GM foods has spawned the generation of herbicide-resistant weeds, which now cover tens of thousands of acres across the United States. It's a situation exactly similar to the indiscriminate use of antibiotics provoking bacterial resistance. The indiscriminate use of herbicides has provoked the growth of resistant weeds, and hence we get into a vicious cycle of having to apply greater and greater quantities of more and more herbicides. 
And the second new development is the fact that glyphosate, marketed under the name of Roundup, which is the world's most widely used herbicide, was declared in the spring of this year by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is the cancer agency of the World Health Organization, to be a probable human carcinogen. And also, just a month or so ago, 2,4-D, 2,4-dichlorophenoxyacetic acid, which is another widely used herbicide on GM foods, was declared by IARC to be a possible human carcinogen. So we have the situation now where ever larger quantities of herbicides are being applied to foods, and one of these herbicides is a probable and another one a possible human carcinogen. It's in this context that my colleague, Dr. Chuck Benbrook, and I thought it was time to raise the issue to a biomedical audience of genetically modified foods, herbicides, and public health and revisit the conversation about whether or not to label GM foods. And speaking of labeling, given this new classification for glyphosate, will crops grown using it have to be labeled in any way to reflect that probable carcinogen classification? That's an interesting question. I don't think there'd be a requirement at the federal level. There may be a requirement in certain states like California under Proposition 65, but I'm not expert in that legislation, so I wouldn't want to go further than say it's a possibility. And who's most at risk from potentially carcinogenic herbicides? Do they pose measurable risk to consumers, or is it mostly farmers and other people who process the crops? Well, I think there are different risks for different people. Certainly, farmers and people who process these crops are heavily exposed to herbicides. And some of the epidemiologic studies that have established the carcinogenicity or the probable carcinogenicity of herbicides have been studies of agricultural workers conducted by the National Cancer Institute and by researchers in Europe. But in the general population, other than farmers and food processors, the general thinking is that it's infants and children, infants in the womb and young children in the first years after birth who are most vulnerable. And they're most vulnerable for several reasons. First of all, they eat more food pound for pound of body weight than adults, and so they will take into their bodies more of any herbicide residue that's present in the food. Secondly, they're biologically more vulnerable because their cells are growing and developing. And thirdly, children, of course, have many more decades of life ahead of them than the average adult. And so if you accept the proposition that chemically induced cancer is a multi-stage process that has to proceed often through several decades before cancers become manifest, kids have a lot longer time to develop any cancer that may be initiated by exposures in early life. It's like childhood exposure to asbestos that may take five or six decades to produce a mesothelioma. Is this actually going to happen? I don't know. It's a probable human carcinogen, not a proven human carcinogen. But if one reasons from the perspective of prudence, it would seem wise not to allow large numbers of children to be exposed unwittingly to a probable human carcinogen. Finally, and looking to the future, you write in your article that the National Academy of Sciences has now convened a new committee to reassess the effects of genetically modified crops. So will that committee look at these increases in herbicide use, and do you expect its findings in the long run to have an effect on policy? I can't predict what the committee will look at because I'm not a member. I would think that they probably will look at these new data because the data are certainly front and center. And almost certainly, like any National Academy committee, their final report, which is expected in 2016, will have influence on national policy. I can't imagine it would not. Thank you, Dr. Landrigan.